that second verse gets me. Oh, perfect redemption, the purchase of blood to every believer, the promise of God, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. And, boy, I'm glad that he has pardoned us. And uh, I thank him for his love. And uh, I don't know why in the world he does, but I'm so grateful that he loves us. And I uh, hope that you are too this morning. Nehemiah chapter 2, we continue a series that we began a few weeks ago uh, entitled Arise and Build on the life of Nehemiah. And just by way of uh, background to kind of quickly review some of the things that we've learned initially, first of all, Nehemiah was just an ordinary person. Uh, some people uh, over the years have said, well, I, I just don't, I'm not like that person, I'm not like that person, I can't serve God this way or that way. And Nehemiah was nothing uh, special. Uh, he wasn't um, a prophet, he was not a priest, he was not some major leader that God uh, saw and said, boy, he's doing such a great job leading. He was simply a servant. He was a cupbearer to the king. And we've said this uh, several times now that Nehemiah was an ordinary man who had an extraordinary God that did extraordinary things through him. And that ought to be encouraging to you and I because the truth of the matter is I know that we're just normal folks. And yet God is an extraordinary God. Amen. And he can do extraordinary things if we'll allow him to. And the thing that just amazes me about the story of Nehemiah is how often he gives credit to God. In fact, so much so that he puts his full and absolute dependence upon God. If it was not for the provident hand and the the good hand of his God on him, as he uses that phrase over and over throughout this book, if it was not for the good hand of his God upon him, Nehemiah would never have done the work. And so he gives all the credit and all the glory to God. We got into chapter 2. In the early part of chapter 2, we learned that his dependence was not on what the king could do. And uh, we made this statement because the Bible says it, and I, I believe every word of the Scripture is inspired and given by God. There's not one word in there by accident, and I believe the Bible teaches that. And so one of the uh, things that we learned in chapter number 2 uh, was the fact that he had not been uh, had had a uh, temperament of being displeased before time in the presence of the king. He didn't have a sad countenance. And the reason for that was, the tradition of the day, was that if you were in the presence of the king, Artaxerxes here, uh, you were not allowed to be sad because if you were, that meant that the king was not all sufficient for you. And back in that day, the Persian kings believed that they were the answer for any problem that their subjects had and they were to look to the king for their resources. And so Nehemiah had uh, all these years uh, been pleasant in the presence of the king and followed the custom of the day. But the truth of the matter is uh, that was a human king who we know was not all sufficient for everything that they faced. And yet they had to put on an act. You and I serve the king of kings and he is all sufficient for everything we need. And we don't have to put on an act. So we ought not ever be coming to the Lord in a spirit of dejection or sadness of countenance. Even when we're going through the valleys, we can come to him with joy because he is all sufficient. And uh, the older I get in ministry, the more I learn that it is not about you and I. Even the valleys we go through are not 
are not all about you and I. They're about the Lord Jesus Christ. They're about God Himself who brings us through things to increase our faith and to cause us to turn our eyes to Him. And I said last week that there are folks who, when they go through trying times and persecution, they react one of two ways. And one of them is to get angry at God and to get bitter at God and to turn from God. And we all could probably point to people, maybe even times in our lives where we, we've done it. And we've turned from God or been upset at God for allowing us to go through some things. I, I never forget going through the uh, cancer that my dad had and uh, the suffering that he went through after 40 years of ministry. And it's very easy to question God in such a way that you say, Lord, he served you faithfully for 40 years and you're allowing him to suffer uh, to this degree. And why would you do that? And it could either push you from God with bitterness and cause you to get angry at him or you run to him for strength because you realize that's the source of getting through the valley. And can I tell you this without exception? Running to him is far better than getting angry and bitter at him. Amen. And I don't understand when people go through valleys and they get out. The first thing they do is start dropping out of church or turning from God. Well, if I was in that situation, I'd run to him. I'd say, Lord, I can't get through this thing without you. And uh, understanding that there's not one thing that happens in my life or your life that God does not allow to happen. And there's two things that we've learned from that. Everything that happens to us is always for our good. And it is always for his glory. And we ought to keep those things in mind. And Nehemiah knows this. Nehemiah realizes the provident hand of God. He knows that God has ordained and allowed all of these things to come into alignment. Just even down to the king that is empowered at this time. Because the other Persian kings were known to be very cruel kings. And for Artaxerxes to open up to uh, Nehemiah and say, what is it that you request of me, is a pretty major thing for a king to do. They just didn't do that in that day and age. And God had put that king in that place for that time and for Nehemiah to be in that place, serving under that king for that time, to do his work. And God always seems to orchestrate things in our lives if we simply just allow him to do it. And then we started dealing with the subject of serving God last week, and we started dealing with that down towards the middle of chapter number 2. And we said this about the work. We said that the work that Nehemiah is getting involved in is a good work. We said that his call was clear, and there's several things that uh, ought to determine if God's calling us uh, in our lives. And first one is there ought to be a desire to do his work. And secondly, there ought to be ability or enablement to do his work. And then thirdly, there ought to be opportunity to do his work. And all three of those things lined up in Nehemiah's case, and so he knows of God's call and God's direction on his life. And then the motives were pure. He wasn't doing it to try to elevate himself or to promote himself, but he was doing it that the name of Christ would not, or the name of God would not be a reproach to anyone anymore. And so he had the right motive. Uh, and then we found out that his methods were right. And he went about it the right way. And that's a very important thing. We talked a little bit about the importance of doing things God's way, not just our way. The end does not always justify the means. There is a biblical way to do God's work. And methods are important to God. And then we found that his dependence was upon God and that we ought to rely uh, only on him and earnestly seek for his blessing. And then one thing that we did not touch on last week, but I did want to bring out here at the onset, is that when the, uh, the vision was given... 
and Nehemiah expressed the burden of his heart. The Bible says that the people took time to strengthen their hands for the work. And I just want to say this, that time spent preparing to do God's work is never wasted. Uh, when I was in Bible college, I remember my second year of Bible college thinking, boy, there's so much work for God to do or that God needs done that uh, should I go through and finish all four years? I mean, I was just chomping at the bit to get out there and do something for the Lord. And uh, I, I didn't understand why I was going to have to go through four years, and it ended up, uh, you know, we, we compacted that a little bit into six years and <laughs> made it a little better. Uh, but uh, I'll tell you, it, it was one of those things I struggled with. And I spent long hours praying and seeking God and saying, Lord, why do I feel like I need to go through this and get some kind of certificate from men's approval uh, when your work is, is needing so many labors in the field? And I struggled with that, and I sat in a class one morning, and a man uh, brought up Ecclesiastes 10.10. If you get time to read that, it's, a, it's an amazing verse of Scripture. And he made this statement about Ecclesiastes 10.10. He said, time spent sharpening your axe is never wasted. You may get into the forest a little bit later in the day, but by the end of the day you will have accomplished far more. And I thought, boy, that's an amazing thought. We ought to strengthen our hands for the work and prepare for the work. So that's kind of where we left off last week. Let's begin reading, if you will. Uh, we're going to back up to verse number 9 and get a running start into this. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 9. Then I came to the governors beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had set, sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant of the, the Ammonite heard of it, it grieved them exceedingly that there was come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days, and I rose in the night, I and some few men with me. Neither told I any man what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. Neither was there any beast with me, save the beast that I rode upon. And I went out by night, by the gate of the valley, even before the dragon well into the dung port, and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and the gates thereof were consumed with fire. Then I went on to the gate of the fountain and to the king's pool, but there was no place for the beast that was under me to pass. Then went I up in the night by the brook and viewed the wall and turned back and entered by the gate of the valley and so returned. And the rulers knew not whither I went or what I did, neither had I as yet told it to the Jews, nor to the priests, nor to the nobles, nor to the rulers, nor to the rest that did the work. Then said I unto them, Ye see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lieth waste, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Come, and let us build up the wall of Jerusalem, that we be no more of reproach. Then I told them of the hand of my God, which was good upon me, as also the king's words that he had spoken unto me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for this good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite, and Geshem the Arabian heard it, they laughed us to scorn and despised us and said, What is this thing that ye do? Will ye rebel against the king? Then answered I them and said unto them, The God of heaven, he will prosper us. Therefore we his servants will arise and build. But ye have no portion nor right nor memorial in Jerusalem. Father, we come to you this morning. And, Lord, we're a needy people. And, Lord, people that have come this morning do not need to hear my thoughts about your word, but what they need is a touch from you. And I pray over the next few moments that you will allow the truth of your word to 
effectively do its work in our hearts. That we'll seek for that. That our hearts will already be yielded. That we'll put ourselves in a place where we are absolutely yielded and completely surrendered to the teaching and the preaching of Your truth. And then, Father, that Your Holy Spirit will give us discernment as we look at this passage. Lord, may we learn all of the truth that we can possibly get out of it this morning. Principles that will help us in our lives. Things that teach that teaches us about You and Your character and who You are. That it will draw our hearts closer to You. That it will strengthen our faith. And Father, in some cases and where needed, it may even reprove us of some things. And Father, while we don't like those things in our lives, we understand and know that they're necessary to uh, sift out the chaff that's in our lives and the weeds that get in there to draw us closer to You. And so, Father, we even ask this morning that if needed, that You would reprove us, that You would correct us and help us to see from Your Word what we ought be and how we ought to go about serving You. We pray that You'll bless all that is said and done. May Your Holy Spirit move in power and in might and speak to hearts within as we speak from without. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We said last week that any time you begin to do a work for God, you can mark it down. The persecution will come. Jesus said in His ministry, they've hated me. They're going to hate you too. And I'll tell you this, if you're doing God's work God's way and everybody loves you, something's not right. We don't go out of our way to try to offend people, but the truth of the matter is Satan absolutely hates and detests God's work being accomplished. And he will find places and ways to discourage and to try to get us to be swayed from doing the work that he's given for us to do. And Nehemiah is no different as he depends upon God and he sought God's leadership and he spent time in prayer all this time seeking what God would have him to do. And he begins the work. We find that there are some men that come along that begin to discourage him. In chapter 1, we saw Nehemiah, the man of prayer. In chapter 2, we find Nehemiah, the man of perseverance. Because these men come and begin to attack his motives and begin to attack his methods and they, uh, they, the Bible says it this way, that when they, uh, Samballot and uh, Tobiah heard about this in verse number 10, that it grieved them, and look at the word that's used here, exceedingly. It really bothered them. It grieved them exceedingly that there was come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. It's amazing to me how often, even inside of our churches, that sometimes even God's people become critical of God's work much less those that are without. Those that will look at God's work being done and for no other reason than to try to encourage and help people and to draw people to the Lord Jesus Christ. We'd have to be blind today to look around our country and not say that it is, its walls are destroyed and its gates are burned with fire. And it's, it's really a reproach, is it not? The way our society is today. And for God's people not to be burdened and broken hearted over to the point where Nehemiah, when he heard of these things, the Bible says that he fasted and he prayed and he was grieved about it. And all that God would open our hearts and soften our hearts to the point of grieving for those that are lost. That it would cause our hearts to be stirred and motivated to do something to, to reach these folks and to build up the walls again and to restore the gates again and to build the temple again. And all that God would stir us with that again. That our hearts would be broken once again. Somebody said years ago that our altars are dry rotting. 
Because there used to be a time when men and women of God would be so broken over the condition of mankind that they would flood the altars and pour out their tears to an almighty God and to plead with Him to do a work on their behalf. Nowadays, we see people looking at their watches towards the end of the service, wondering if the pastor's going to go over and the lines at lunch are going to be long. Where is the, the compassion for the people of our world? I'm reminded of the story of the Good Samaritan and the priest and the Levite who came by and saw the man there at the point of death. And the Bible says that they passed on. The priest passed on quickly. The Levite, at least, the Bible says, looked on him, meaning it probably he stopped and probably had some concern for him, but didn't do anything about it. And then along comes the Samaritan. The Bible says that he was moved with compassion. The difference between them was that some were concerned about the man. The Samaritan was moved with compassion. And while you and I can voice our concern about the the condition of our country and the condition of those that are lost here in Festus and Jefferson County, we can say, oh, we're concerned about it, and we can have meetings about what to do about it, and we can talk all day long. But the truth of the matter is, until God moves our hearts with compassion, we'll never do anything about it. And we need to pray that God would give us a heart of compassion for the lost, a heart of compassion for those that are hurting, that we would be raised up to do something about it. And the book of Nehemiah, the whole idea of it is arising and building and doing something for the Lord Jesus Christ. But can I stop and say this and pause the message for just a moment? Service is not about what what God can do for us. In fact, service is not all even about what we can do for God. But service is about being a vessel that God can use to do what He wants to do. If we ever get to the point where we can learn the right motive of service, and I've heard churches and pastors get up and preach, well, we owe it to God. And the truth of the matter is we owe a debt that we can never repay. We would all agree with that, I believe. The truth is we'll never repay it. And if our motive is to try to repay a debt that we can never repay, it's only going to result in frustration. That's not the motive for service. We could say it's out of obedience, and and there is certainly a merit to obedience, but we obey God simply because it's right. We don't do it for fulfillment or joy. We find Ephesians chapter 6 speaks of that. The children are to obey their parents in the Lord, for this is what? Right. There's no promise to obedience. Then he goes on to say, honor thy father and mother, which is that thy days may be long on the earth. And we find that honoring has reward. There is a difference, by the way, between obedience and honor, right? We understand that. We ought to serve God not just out of obedience. We do that simply because it's right, but there's no fulfillment in that. We serve God because we love Him with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, and with all of our minds. And when we serve out of that motivation, there is no frustration in ministry. We do it out of absolute love for Him. Nehemiah gets to this place where he's burdened to do something for God. And all that we could ever learn this truth and the principle that we become a vessel of honor. We become a cleansed vessel that is suitable, that is meat for the master's use. That we can be that city that is set on a hill that cannot be hid. That we could be that, that light that's not hidden under a bushel. That we could be that salt to a world that needs us desperately. Not because of our merit or who we are, but because of allowing God to work in us and through us. That we would love Him with all of our hearts. 
and allow that to pour out into a lost and a dying world. We find here that it grieved Sanballat and Tobiah exceedingly, and they were mad. They were burdened over this thing that somebody would seek the welfare of the children of Israel. And there will come a time if we seek the welfare of our country and the society that we live in and the, the, the county that we're in and the cities that we live in, that there are going to be some people that are going to be mad that we're seeking for their well-being. Satan hasn't changed his tactics in all these years, has he? He's going to try to dissuade us and persecute us. But I want you to notice after the, he's uh, already known of the grieving and the uh, the anger of Sanballat and Tobiah. In verse number 11, I love this. It says, so I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. They didn't stop him, did they? Jeremiah, or Nehemiah knew of this thing, and yet he continues to press on toward Jerusalem and to say, you know, it's not going to bother me. There's a reason, and we're going to look at that here at the end of the message. There's a reason, and the reason Nehemiah had to go through much of what we studied in the first part of chapter 2 and chapter 1 is so that he could get to a point where he could be this bold and that he could persevere through persecution. We're going to look at that in just a few moments. Look in verse number 12. The Bible says, And I arose in the night, I and some few men with me, neither told I any man what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. And I want you to notice this. That Nehemiah was not doing what he wanted to do, but Nehemiah was doing what God wanted him to do. For the Bible says here in verse number number 12 that God had put this in Nehemiah's heart. God had put it into Nehemiah's heart. That's important. Because one of the things he's going to be accused of here in just a little bit is being a rebel to the king. That was not at all the case. Nehemiah wasn't trying to raise some insurrection against Artaxerxes. He's not trying to make a name for himself. He was not trying to become the most popular pastor in this country, or he wasn't trying to build the largest megachurch that he could build. Nehemiah was doing what God had put in his heart to do. That's the motivation. That's what stirs us to do the work that God's given us to do. Is when He puts it in our hearts. Neither was there any beast with me, save the beast that I rode upon, and I went out by night by the valley, uh, gate of the valley, even before the dragon well into the dung port. And I want you to notice this. If you're in the habit of underlining your Bible, you ought to underline this phrase. And viewed the walls of Jerusalem. I just want to think about that for a moment. He viewed the walls of Jerusalem. When was the last time we viewed the lost world? The Bible says we're in the world, we're not to be of the world, but we are in the world, and we ought to be able to walk circumspectly. We ought to be aware, we ought to be looking and seeing the world that we live in. If you're like I am, there are times I get busy. Any of y'all ever do that? You ever go to the grocery store and you're just anxious to get in and out? You're tired of the lines? And we fail to see it, don't we? We drive down the roads and the traffic is terrible. People cutting us off. We get angry. Somebody cut me off. And we fail to see them, don't we? We have our own agendas, our own life laid out before us. We make the plans of all that we're going to do today. Some of us have plans for this weekend. 
with it being Labor Day and we're focused on some of us maybe be sitting in the service today thinking about what we're going to do tomorrow. The picnic we're going to late, maybe later this afternoon. Or, and we fail to see them. Nehemiah goes out by night. And the Bible says that he looked at the walls that had been broken down and the gates that had been burned with fire. Why? Why did Nehemiah do this? I'll tell you why I think and why I believe. And if you disagree with me, that's fine. Because the Bible doesn't tell us expressly. But I do know this, that later on it moved him to action. And I'll say this. I think we can learn a vital principle here. That God allows our eyes to affect our hearts. I think that's why Jesus told his disciples, Say not ye yet there are four months to harvest. He said, lift up your eyes. And look under the fields, for they are white already unto harvest. The importance of seeing. I want to encourage you this morning that if you've lost your vision of the lost, could we get on our knees this week sometime and say, Lord, open my eyes again. Help me to see We're living in a day and age where our churches have lost God's power and God's zeal of reaching the lost world. And I believe it's happened because we've lost our vision. The letter that was written to the church of Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3 spoke of the fact that they thought they were all this. He said, you don't realize that you're miserable and poor and blind and naked. We can get to a place where we become so comfortable as a church that we lose our vision. We're so comfortable with coming and going through the order of service and singing the songs that we've sung and and hearing the messages from God's Word that are encouraging and uplifting and and some even that maybe step on our toes sometimes uh, as God convicts or brings something to mind in our hearts. And we're so used to the routine of church that sometimes we lose the vision. There need to be times in our lives, in every one of our lives, where we go out and we view the walls. We say, Lord, affect affect my heart again. Help me to see the lost. Help me to see the world we live in. He went out by night and he viewed the walls of Jerusalem, verse number 13, which were broken down and the gates thereof were consumed with fire. Then I went on to the gate of the fountain and to the king's pool. But there was no place for the beast that was under me to pass. Let me just say this about this and we'll move on. There's an awful lot of debris here. One of the things that will hinder our vision is when we have a lot of debris in our lives. Nehemiah couldn't view this area because there was so much in the way that his beast couldn't even pass through. There are times that our lives will get cluttered, won't they? We'll allow some things to come into our hearts and then we scratch our heads and wonder, Lord, where's that desire I used to have for you? The psalmist wrote it this way, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. There was a time that the psalmist was overjoyed with what God was doing in his life and yet he reached a point where he had lost it. There had been some things that have crept into his life that caused him to lose his vision of who God was. And Can I tell you this? That when we leave little things undone in our lives... It can hinder our vision of seeing what God wants us to do. We lose that zeal, that excitement, that joy. 
Nehemiah was trying to view the walls and the gates, and he gets to this portion, and there was so much debris in the way that he could not pass through. One preacher said it this way, we ought to keep short accounts with God. I'm glad that God is faithful, aren't you, to forgive us of our sins. We don't ask forgiveness once we're saved in order to regain salvation because we never lose it. But we do ask forgiveness to keep a clear channel of communication and fellowship with Him, don't we? I remember when I was a kid getting more than my fair share of whoopings. And you all know the difference, right? There are whippings and then there are whoopings. And the whoopings help us to remember in between, or the whippings help us remember in between the whoopings what that's about. And I'll never forget, there was a period of time in my life where it seemed like, now I'm not sure it happened this way, but I, to me at that age, it seemed like every single day I got a whipping for about three months. You'd have thought I'd learned. And I'll tell you, when my mom said, Greg, I, go to your room, when your dad gets home, he'll deal with it. I would rather my mom whoop me all afternoon than to sit in my room and agonize over the fact that my dad was getting ready to come home. And there were times that when my dad walked home, if I wasn't expecting a spanking, I couldn't wait for him to get home. I'd run to the door, wait for him, and we'd go out and throw the ball around together or shoot some baskets. I wanted to be around him. I wanted to be near him. We didn't have TV back then. Well, we had TV back then, but our family didn't have a TV. And we did stuff. I think that's healthy for a family. And... Uh, But I'll tell you, the days I was expecting that whipping, I didn't want to be anywhere near him. In fact, I had a place in my room I'd get, and I'd be as quiet as I could be. I didn't want to bring attention to myself. I didn't even want to eat supper that night at the dinner table because I didn't want my dad seeing me. Because I knew as soon as he saw me, there was going to have to be some reconciliation there that I was not looking forward to. I'll never forget him going into that bedroom and he'd pray with me, make sure I understood what I'd done wrong, and then we'd have our time of fellowship with the leather belt. And after it was over, he'd wrap me in his arms. And it was all okay. I could sit the rest of the evening in the living room next to my dad and love on him because it was all better. Say, I don't like asking forgiveness for my sins. Makes me feel awkward. Oh, but the sweet fellowship that comes. The songwriter wrote it this way. Nothing between my soul and the Savior. There's a lot of rubbish at this point of the wall. It was hindering his view. I wonder if there's rubbish in our lives that hinder our views. Verse number 14, verse number 15, excuse me. Then went I up in the night by the brook and viewed the wall, turned back and entered by the gate of the valley, and so returned. And the rulers knew not whither I went or what I did. Neither had I as yet told it to the Jews, nor to the priests, nor to the nobles, nor to the rulers, nor to the rest that did the work. Then said I unto them, You see the distress that we are in. 
We can gripe about the condition of our world all we want to, but the truth of the matter is we are in distress. They weren't in physical distress, but they were in an area of distress that Nehemiah worded it this way, that it was a reproach. There used to be a day when God's power and God's influence was so evident in the lives of Christians that people flocked to the church doors to hear about the great God that they had. It used to be that the church didn't have very much influence, but they certainly had God's power. We live in a day now where we've got a lot of influence, but we've lost the power. We've lost it. I've asked this question as I've seen in Scripture so often the importance that God puts on serving Him with His power. When He spoke to the disciples and told them to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, He says, But tarry ye in Jerusalem till ye be endued with power. In Acts chapter 1, verse number 8, we heard of the promise that ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me. When the power of the Holy Ghost came on them, they were witnesses to him. I've often wondered this question. Are we out of God's will doing God's work, God's way, without God's power? Are we out of God's will doing God's work, God's way, without His power? For the Bible says, without me ye can do nothing. And we can labor and labor and labor. And I'm thankful that God's Word doesn't return void. But there are many times I believe God works in spite of us. Wouldn't it be far better if He could work because of us? That we would allow the Holy Spirit of God to fully control us. That His power would be evident in our church and in our lives. And God's increase would be exceeding abundantly above all that we could ask or think according to the Power that worketh in us. So often we attempt to do God's work. We may even do it God's way and with the right motive. But we lack His power. We don't seek for it anymore. We don't thirst for it or hunger for it anymore. I have heard revival stories of Many of these men of yesteryear that were used mightily of the Lord. Charles Finney walked into a factory one day, a textile factory. The noise of the machinery was so loud that even the owner of the factory that was giving him the tour had to shout to be heard just a few feet away from him. 
The story goes that as he walked into that factory, as he looked at the men operating the equipment, the men would stop their work and some of them would cling to the posts, afraid that they were going to die and slip off into hell. They had to shut the factory down and the man had to give Charles Finney a room to meet with those that were convicted of their sin. And Charles Finney had never said a word to him. The power of God was just evident on his life. I know that God chooses to bring revival as He deems fit. But can we not put ourselves in a position to where if God chooses, we are fully ready for it? Verse 17, Then said I unto them, Ye see the distress that we are in. How that Jerusalem lieth waste, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Folks, we're in distress. God's children, God's folks that He's called out, and put them in local churches. We call them believers, those that have put their faith and trust in the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, they're in distress. Why? Because of the condition that we are in and we do not see it. We're in a place where some watchmen need to stand out and shout the warning, not just to the lost, but to God's people. That we be awakened once again to the needs around us. That we see the necessary, uh, the, the evident necessity of God's work being done in this world. And that we would yield to the Lord Jesus Christ and say, Lord, here's a vessel. If you can take it and use it, use it. And let God do what He's going to do. In verse number 17, the Bible says, Come, let us build up the wall of Jerusalem that we... Be no more a reproach. We live in a world where people criticize Christianity. <laughs> and can I say this, and I say it to our shame, much of it is deserved. Much of it has been because we've lost God's power. The world looks to Christians who claim to be the children of an almighty God, who claim to be serving the Lord of the universe, the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords, and they have no power. They have no testimony. They're children of the King. And they're acting like children of peasants. No wonder the world criticizes. We ought to live in such a way with the reproach being so far uh, being so far above reproach that the Bible says that even if a man were to accuse us, they wouldn't believe it. That we would live with holiness and godliness again. That we would seek for God's purpose in our life. 
and then to do it. Verse 18, then I told them of the hand of my God. And there we see it again, this phrase that so often Nehemiah uses in his book. For you understand, Nehemiah knew where the source of this was from. The hand of my God, which was good upon me, as also the king's words that he had spoken unto me. And they said, let us rise up and build. Nehemiah didn't have to beat him over the head. He didn't have to try. He just simply said, listen, let me tell you how good God's been to me. Can I tell you this this morning? No matter what condition our society is in, and no matter how far God's people have lost their vision, I've got good news for you this morning. God is still able. His hand is not shortened. His arm is not shortened. He's not lost His power or His ability to do His work through His people if they so choose. I believe it's time for God's people to say, let me tell you of the good hand of my God upon me. I'm going to go out into a world and I'm not going to sit there and debate their their lack of belief. I'm just going to share with them the truth. I heard a preacher say it this way one time. We were never called to debate. We were called to declare God's truth. I was listening to a preacher preach this week and he said he sat on an airplane next to a Mormon and got into a discussion with him. And he started off by trying to get the arguments of the Mormon and to try to show from Scripture how they were wrong. And he said that just a few minutes into it, he said, God struck my heart with the thought that this is, this is ridiculous. I'm not going to persuade him and he's not going to persuade me. And this time spent on the plane is going to be wasted in debate. He said, I'm going to just share the truth. He said, for an hour and a half, I shared the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ, how that He died. He came to this earth. He died and was buried and rose again. And after that flight was over, the man looked at him and did not get saved on the plane, but he looked at him and he said this, I have never heard that before. Can I tell you this? Satan would love nothing more for us to get caught up in debate with those that are unbelievers. The truth of the matter is they need to hear the truth. Let's quit debating and start declaring. Let's quit getting bogged down for that Satan's tactic. And let's just share the truth. That Jehovah Witness or that Mormon comes to your door, don't sit there and try to argue every point they give you. Just share with them the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, Brother Greg, they're not going to get saved. They may not, but they'll hear the gospel. And then it's up to God to work in their hearts. And then it's up to them to either choose to accept or reject it. Nehemiah told these people of the great hand of his God upon him. That was good. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for this good work and the importance of preparing. We won't take time to develop that because we'll have some things in the future as we move towards the new year as we deal with the idea of strengthening our hands for the work. Verse number 19, But when Sinbalt the Horonite and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite and Geshem the Arabian heard it, they laughed us to scorn and despised us and said, What is this thing that you do? Will you rebel against the king? And I want you to notice this. Nehemiah has letters from the king, doesn't he? He has the seal of the king saying, Nehemiah has my permission to go do this. Nehemiah actually has my provision to go do this, as he told the folks that even ran the king's force to provide the materials for it. And it would have been very easy for Nehemiah to say, listen, Sanballat and Tobiah and Gershom, listen, guys, the king said, I could do this. 
But Nehemiah does not say that. I think we learn something very important here. For we find in verse number 20, Then answered I them and said unto them, What are the next four words? The God of heaven. Guys, I've got all authority from the king that you're accusing me of rebelling against. But let me tell you, that's not why I'm doing this. I'm doing this because of the God of heaven. The God of heaven, He will prosper us. Therefore, we His servants will arise and build. It doesn't matter if you mock me. It doesn't matter if you laugh me to scorn and despise me. The God of heaven will prosper me. And I will arise and build. Nehemiah, the man of perseverance, is not discouraged. Because he has his eyes in the right place. He's not dependent upon Artaxerxes. That was God's provident hand at work in his ministry. But that's not what he was relying on. He was relying on the God of heaven. Oh, that we would rely on the God of heaven. That we would not say, well, it's lawful for me to go do this. Oh, we've got liberty in the United States to go do this. No, no. We have the great honor and privilege that the Lord of the universe, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, has chosen to place us in His service. And that's why we do it. That's why we do it. Oh, that we would learn these lessons from Nehemiah. Because I'll tell you right now, we live in a day and age where it's going to be real easy to get discouraged. We live in a day where it's difficult already to do ministry. And I believe that in the days ahead, it's going to get even harder yet. But unless we are grounded in believing that the God of heaven has put it in our hearts to do this. And the God of heaven, He will prosper us. We'll get frustrated and quit. Nehemiah, it was so important for him to learn early on in this venture that his dependence was upon God, not the king. And that since God had chosen him for this work, man could not dissuade him from it. Oh, that we would learn these things. Let's stand together with heads bowed. Father, we're thankful for your word. Lord, there are times that I'm convicted as I read things like this, as I see my own faults and failures. And there are times that perhaps as we come to Nehemiah, we'll see this. And Father, it gives great hope, great encouragement and excitement to me to realize that you can take an ordinary person and do extraordinary things through him. Father, may we have our focus in the right place. May we put our eyes in the right place. Lord, the message this morning has been mainly to Christians. And as we take a few weeks here to study the purpose of service, the methods of service, the motives of service, and how to seek for your power in service. But Father, the truth of the matter is there might be somebody in this room this morning that does not know if they died right now that they would go to heaven. 
Father, help them to see how much you love them. And while we've not taken a whole message to deal with this topic, Lord, help them to understand that you loved them enough to send your son to die in their place so they would not have to. That he was buried and that he rose again. And that if they'll simply put their faith in you, not in their works, not in what they can do, but they'll simply lean upon you and put their faith in the shed blood of you. That you will be their God and their Savior. And that you will forgive them of their sin. And that you will seal them and secure them and give them a home in heaven for all of eternity. And Father, if there's someone like that today in this room, I pray that before this time is over and we've left the building, that they will find one of us And allow us to take your word and show them how they can be saved. Father, in just a moment, we're going to have an invitation time and a time for folks to respond to the preaching of your word. And perhaps those that are not saved this morning would allow us during that time to come forward and let us take your word and show them how they can be saved. Perhaps some Christians need to come this morning and say, I've lost my vision Maybe some of us are too distracted or too busy with the things of this world. Maybe we've allowed some clutter into our lives. Father, perhaps some of us have been attempting to do your work without your power. And it's been frustrating. Perhaps some of us are going through trying times of maybe persecution or attacks by Satan in their lives to try to dissuade them from doing your work. And Father, maybe we just need to be strengthened today that we would put our eyes and renew our vision on you. But Father, help us to see this world and the condition that it's in, the need that it has for your people to rise up with power and to share a gospel of a loving God to them. Bless the invitation time, and Lord, do as you would see fit in it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. With heads bowed and eyes closed, our instrumentalists are going to play.